Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. We're going to be in Luke 19, starting with verse 28. And the last time the message was titled, Do Business Until He Comes. Right? Somebody maybe who doesn't know the Lord or is brand new to the faith or maybe went to a church for a few years and they never taught the Bible. They talked about a lot of things from the pulpit, but not God's Word. So we covered the parable of the Minas. And a lot of people, even Christians, like, well, I don't remember the parable of the Minas. I never heard of that, right? So Jesus kind of uses an illustration to teach us that we have a responsibility <laughs> until He comes for us, right? And as believers, as a church, but also as individually, what is our maybe small personal ministry that God has for us? Um, it's something to, to look at, certainly. Um, you know, in any relationship, it's a two-way street. Otherwise, the relationship doesn't last long if there's only one side that's doing all the work. So in the parable of the Minas, you see that God does have expectations. He loves us. He fills us with His Holy Spirit. He gives us the grace and the power to do these things. But there is an expectation. So check that out. You can get that for free off the website. And today, the message is titled, The Unseen Triumph. i got to be honest with you. Maybe 13, 14 years ago, I taught the Gospel of Luke. I've taught other Gospels. And maybe I labeled the uh, sermon, The Triumphal Entry, like everybody else does. But as I started studying it, I looked at it and I'm like, you know, there's a big difference from the way the world sees this triumphal entry and the way people of of God, spiritual people, see the triumphal entry. What's so triumphal about it? From an, uh, an objective, worldly, onlooker's perspective, they look at it and they say, well, there's no you know, beautiful horse with a military leader on it. There's no ticker tape parade. There's no uh, presence from the Roman government at all as a part of it. There's really no presence from the religious echelon. So what's the big deal? What gives here? And we're going to see that this was something, regardless of outward appearance, right? God was doing a work. God was trying to convey something. God felt, and if he feels it's a triumph, then it is a triumph. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, so we're going to look at this in five parts and jumping in to Luke's gospel. We'll check it out and see what's going on here. Verse 28, when he, Jesus, had said this, right, we're referring back to the parable of the Minas. It's one contiguous thought. He went on ahead, came to Jerusalem, and he came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you. Where you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. 
And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. So one is the preparation. Now, I love the preparation. Uh, It's just me. I love backgrounds. I love research foundations. To me, the more you study the Middle East in this time period, the richer the Bible becomes, right? There's just things that in American culture we don't fully get. So let's go into this preparation. If you're looking at Jerusalem, to your east would be Bethany. So (laughs) to your east would be Bethany, Bethphage, and Olivet. Now, two things that are very interesting, if you look at this, do a little geographical study, is that those little towns are within two miles, maybe 1.6, 1.7 miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem also has an elevation, so it's higher than those towns. My wife and I do a lot of walking, and I like to know, I'm just that type of person, how many miles did we walk? So I'll get in my car and set the odometer and, you know, oh, we did two and a half miles today or three miles, whatever the case may be. But I can tell you from doing a lot of walking for years that I know that if I'm looking at something in the distance and it's unobstructed, right, and that would have been the case back then, it would be very easy to see a little town or a little development if it's within two miles. So, so cool, the gospel writers, they're very accurate because these things actually happened. And the Bible loves to give us detail. So Jesus and his followers, as they went towards Jerusalem, they could see the city and Jesus could direct his disciples. It doesn't matter that whatever anyone's name is, each time he sends a disciple to do this and that, and sometimes we get caught up in name recognition, he sends two of his disciples. Hey, you two do this. You guys do that. As he gets closer, he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows, because he's God the Son, what's going to happen in about 30-something years from this point in time. And we'll get into that next Sunday. But know that all four Gospels have this in some detail. This was how important it was for the Gospel writers. Right? Some of the Gospels, John said, hey, I, I think this is really important, the washing of the feet. The other synoptic Gospels mention something else that John doesn't mention. You know, from their perspective and their audience, John 21 says, if we said everything that Jesus did, that all the books and libraries couldn't contain all the works that Jesus did in, in three and a half years, or give or take a few months. So, and we're going to see a lot of symbolism here. Each time we look at this, we're going to go into the symbolism. We're going to go into what the world sees. What the, and the world had triumphal entries, whether it was emperors or certain generals, and they conquered and they would come back and they would throw these big parties. However, with the Lord's triumphal entry, within a few days, everything kind of petered out, pun intended, um, because everybody leaves. So here you have possibly thousands of people during this time, and there's a handful of more left when he gets crucified. So again, what's so triumphal about the entry? Two, the unusual errand. This is kind of unusual in verse 30 through 32. Matthew tells us that there were two animals, the donkey and her colt. And Jesus rides the colt. Again, back then, parades, triumphal entries, military commanders, large, stately, beautiful horses dressed up as much as the general was. Not so here. There's a donkey. However, if we read the Scripture, go back to the Old Testament, that uh, royalty would oftentimes ride a a well-broken-in donkey. 
Uh, especially a prince would ride in on a donkey. Well, that's interesting because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We go back to the, the parable of the Minas. Right? This, this section refers back to the parable of the Minas. The Minas. And what we know is that um, right in the Scripture here, it says in the parable, which is an illustration of what's to come, that the world at the time Christ comes back, they won't want Him to rule over them. And we've covered this, right? A few Sundays ago. And I would just say this, the more the United States and the world departs from the Lord and His Word, we see the opposition of peace. And people say, well, how come there's not peace? You know, we, we have a global community. We have the United Nations. We have the ability electronically to communicate with other countries. We have all these treaties. How come there's no peace in this world? Because peace is something that's unseen. There's different types of peace. Like people in the world, people in our culture, they have peace when they're not being aggravated by circumstances. Their boss, the kids, their friends, family members during the holidays. Oh, I'm at peace. But that's not what peace is. That's circumstantial peace. The true peace, right, is something that's on a deeper level. It's spiritual. A person who can have peace even though these circumstances are bearing down on them. Right? But again, we have a world that at the same time is looking for peace, but pushing the Prince of Peace out. So you have this kind of inverse relationship taking place. We try all kinds of philosophies. Even the Apostle Paul calls them vain. They're stupid philosophies. They're recycled. They've been around for hundreds of years, maybe thousands. And societies, well, we're going to try it this way, and we're going to do it this way. It's going to work. We don't want God. We're going to do it this way. Secular humanist approach. It doesn't work. It's not working in the United States. If you look at all the polls, sadly, about children's mental health and you know, people's um, idea of hope in this country, um, it's very gloomy. I'm, I'm following all the statistics, right? Because largely... Christ is being pushed out. That's why I pray on a regular basis, and I ask you to pray too, for a revival in this country and also overseas. However, we do know that when the Lord comes a second time, He will be riding a horse. We see this in Revelation 19. And no one's going to be able to miss that coming. As He comes to the earth on, on that horse, it's going to be a whole different situation. Remember, He came the first time to save our souls, which was more important to the Lord. Physical, flesh, yeah, God made it, but it's marred by a sin-cursed sort of creation. What's inside, right? How many times we try to say this on social media and stop judging people by the outside? It's what's inside that counts, right? And that's what God came the first time to redeem, the ability to set us free from what sin could do to us, separating, God for, for separating us from God for eternity. So the second time, the Lord comes to redeem His physical creation. There's an order in everything that the Lord does. When you look at eschatology, when you look at prophecy, when you look at theology, there's always an order. God is the God of order, not the God of chaos. Wild stuff. Verse 30, it says, No one ever sat on this cult. So, of course, I go in, not knowing much about breaking in an animal, um, I certainly don't want to try it because I don't want to break bones when they kick me off. So it was a safer bet to go on the internet and see how to break in a donkey. And it's pretty intense, right? We think, oh, four-legged creatures, they want to be ridden. No, they don't. 
they don't want you on their back. So it's a process, uh, especially to train a donkey to be ridden. Donkeys can be very stubborn, but so can we. But there's a threefold significance here that I want to you know, enjoy a little bit here is A, we already covered Jesus' spiritual royalty. He's the Prince of Peace. We know that. The world is not seeing it yet, but it will see it, whether it likes it or not. So the Prince of Peace, spiritual royalty B, he was the animal's creator. He was the animal's creator. So this colt who didn't want to be ridden, Jesus comes up to it, probably touches the animal. Animals can be smarter than people sometimes. And the animal looks up at him, intuitively knows that he is God the Son, that he's not like any other person, any other man. And I can imagine that that animal was honored to have Jesus on its back. So for an animal who had never been broken in, young and full of you know testosterone, and they get that too, he totally submitted to Jesus on his back. I like looking at the little details, right? I, I just, boy, I would, I would love to be there just to see how Jesus handled people and animals and creation. C, the last part of it is Jesus as the king is unique. So he wasn't going to get on an animal that 50 people rode before. He's the king. He's going to get on an animal that no one's ever ridden before. And you can miss the subtleties. right? That's why I'm slowing down with the Gospel of Luke. I don't need to cover a chapter on one Sunday because I enjoy the nuances. I enjoy the subtleties of imagining what it would be like watching that event. Hey, let's, what a, what a, that's a calm colt. He's just getting right on him and the animal's not even flinching. How could that be? He's Jesus. So, Zechariah 9.9, if we can go back into the Old Testament. Now, this is important because I'm going to read these Scriptures and if those who don't know the Bible will say, oh, that's nice. They kind of, everything's grouped together. No, it's not. Zechariah was written uh, centuries before this event took place. So, Zechariah didn't know Jesus. Under the Holy Spirit, he writes these prophecies. Well, it's going to happen in the future. So in Zechariah 9.9, and we're going to triangulate this with Luke 19 and Psalm 118. It's going to be interesting. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Put that somewhere in a category in your brain for a second. Lowly and riding on a donkey. This is about the Messiah. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Specific. Yeah, and Jesus fulfills it. Wow, is right. So, um, we're going we're gonna to pause that for a minute. We're going to come back to it. <laughs> uh, verse 31, going back to Luke's Gospel, is this three out of five is, and I put a question mark, illogical obedience. Right? Jesus is telling the two, I can imagine them getting together sometimes, caucusing and thinking, well, Jesus asked us to do something. We thought we might get arrested, right? So he asked them to go, and if anybody asks, while you're stealing this donkey, they weren't stealing it. Uh, Say the Lord has need of it. Oh yeah, that's going to fly with the local authorities. (laughs) Let's see how that goes down. Listen, I'm just saying, if I was sent, I'd be like, on the way there, I'd have all these questions in my head. Are we going to get arrested? I've never been in trouble with the law before. What if people think we're horse thieves or donkey thieves? But you know what? They needed to trust the Lord's words. 
And sometimes God is directing us to do something and He asks us to trust Him. Now, of course, the caveat is, and people do this, oh, I heard from the Holy Spirit and they say wacky things. Okay, well, God's Word says you shouldn't do that. So there's an inconsistency there. See, we don't have blind faith. When we read the Scripture, nowhere does it say, check your mind at the door. God gave you a big brain, but don't use it. Use as little synapses as possible in the brain and just blind faith. No. Number one, we have articulable faith. Right? What does the Word say? Well, this was the time where these prophecies needed to be fulfilled. Number two, we have foundational faith, but we don't have blind faith. And, and I think that's been a, a fair criticism of some over the years. Here, I'll give you an example. If I have a thought in my head that I see somebody and I want to for, force them to believe in Jesus, a forced conversion, but I know the Word and it's not in there. So I, I know all of what Jesus taught. You try to win people through love, through discussion, through getting to know them, through building a bridge, but not forced conversions. And you might say, but the church did that years ago. Well, they were against what Scripture said. I say that openly, whoever does that stuff. So, are you, you know, when, you, when thoughts come in our mind or we're directed to do something by God, we always have to check it with Scripture and make sure, was that just a fleeting thought? Or was, was God trying to actually use me in this particular situation? Um, verse 33 and 34, there's a dialogue. <laughs> so, they're almost free, right? They almost get the, the colt and the donkey and they're, they're, they're making their way out of town. However, the owner is like, hey, hey, whoa, what are you doing? Right? What's going on here? So there's a dialogue with the animal's owner. And, the, and they say to the animal, this is the obedience that disciples had. They're thinking, well, this could end up bad. They possibly were thinking that. But they did what Jesus said. And they said, the Lord has need of him. And miraculously, he lets them go. He lets them go. So... The question the theologians asked, which to me is not terribly important, is was this prearranged by Jesus or did they just know the prophecies? I think it's the latter, my opinion. Don't know if I'm right or wrong. Same way that Matthew, and this is the thing, well, people will attack the Bible without actually reading it. And you, you know, I'm sure you know people that do that. So Matthew, right, grew up as a Jewish boy. His name is Levi. And uh, he's he you know skirts his foundation and his faith and becomes a turncoat works for the romans and he has his own tax collection booth right and his fellow jews probably hated him so jesus comes by he's preaching and he says to matthew follow me matthew leaves the tax collector booth with all the money right well that's weird well you guys believe in a fairy tale no if you actually study the bible matthew growing up as a jewish boy would have known the scriptures would have known in the first century, Messiah is coming. There's a sliver of time that Jesus came that the prophecy said the Messiah would come. And that sliver of time has come and gone. So Peter and John, right, um, just leave their fishing industry, follow Jesus. Oh, you people follow a fairy tale. No, we don't. They all were expecting that it was a messianic fever, so to speak. So it fell in line. Same thing with the guy, I believe, with the owner and the disciple said the Lord has need of him where do I get to the one prophecy that gives you the day that this actually takes place and you wonder why the owner let them just go and take his animals right wanted to be a part of that 
But I, I say that, again, whatever your opinion is on how this actually took place, I think what's most important is that the prophecies were falling into place. For those of you that are new to this uh, scripture, new to Christianity, a prophecy is just something that nobody could do but God. No other holy book could do. Um, you can look at all the holy books and go through it. There's either no prophecies or prophecies that didn't come true, which makes the book a false book. It's not from God. When God says, 100 years from now, 300, 400, sometimes 2,000 years, and the people, like, the, the prophets are just writing it down, they don't even know. These civilizations have come and gone. God says to the T that something would take place. Only God could do that because he's outside of time. So that's what prophecies are. Okay, continuing through this, verse 35 and 36, the spreading of the clothes on both the colt and the road that Jesus was going to ride the animal onto. So the, 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 the colt has clothes and people are spreading their garments on it. Um, and the general direction that Jesus is going, they take also so others took their garments, spread it on the road so that Jesus could ride not only sit on the garments, but also ride over them. Now, this is interesting because think about, again, if you've ever studied this in Roman history, is that when there was a triumphal entry or when there was a loved, a beloved king that was going to come through the town, people did this. So there's, there's a historical significance, there's a cultural significance here. We can read this fast and miss all the details. I don't want to do that. Uh, but basically the idea when you do that, so why would they do that? The animal doesn't have to worry about his hoofs getting dirty, right? What it is, is it's, it's a sacrifice. It's an honor to give up something that you own, something of value for somebody that you love and admire and respect. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. So, you know, we have to ask the question sometimes as, as believers. We could be Christians a long time. And then ask the question, have I ever given anything up for the Lord? Now again, God's not a, a harsh God. You come to Christ and He gives you a list of demands. There's a, but there's a relationship. There's a give and take. right? And have we ever sacrificed anything for the kingdom in some small way? I always like to start there because sometimes in America people think big. Everything's got to be big. So have we or is our Christian walk sadly all about us? Right? It's the only, only question that we can answer. Now keep in mind, both the government and the religious system at the time wanted Jesus out of the picture. He was causing too much turmoil. Right? It was becoming a problem to the powers that be. So it would have taken Jesus' followers out of their comfort zone to follow Him. Right? They knew. Right? They had the uh, investigative bureaus back then. They had their undercover soldiers and police who were checking out the crowds. Nothing's changed in thousands of years. So they would know that if they were to follow Jesus truly to the end, that they might have a target on their back from the powerful people at the time. And they would have been taken out of their comfort zones to follow the Lord. And I see this with missionaries. I see this with people who go overseas and they don't know what to expect. Sometimes their preaching of the gospel violates some law in some country, and now all of a sudden they find themselves in trouble. Right? But they come out of their comfort zones to do the right thing. And as, as Christians, we've got to do the same thing. So let me just, true confession, don't tell anybody this, but um, I like my comfort zones. Just saying. 
I like routine. I don't like to change. I'm a creature of habit at 55 years old. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know that. However, sometimes the Lord, more than sometimes, stretches me to come out of my comfort zones to sacrifice because something is good. And I might, I might not see the results of it for years. So I want to encourage you with that. Just be a willing vessel for the Lord. If we say we love Him, you know, are we open to what He wants us to do in some small way? Amen. Verse 37, continuing on. says, Then as He, Jesus, was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, He's getting closer. And Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And we're going to get to some of those mighty works. Obviously, if you know the Scripture, you know a lot of those mighty works, right? Saying, quote, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, right, the high echelon religious leaders, called to Him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So, four is the reception. Remember, there's a lot of people in the crowd. Let's go back to Josephus, the historian. That this Passover season, there was close to two million outsiders, pilgrims, in addition to the already crowded population of Jerusalem. This was a big deal because the prophecies were saying, Messiah is coming within, actually at this time, a few days. And anyone who studied the Scripture would understand this. So it's pretty powerful, and I'm going to get to that, leaving you in suspense. So, um, you know, there were good and bad in the crowd. There were troublemakers. There were detractors. Oddly enough, Jesus kind of forced their hand, the ones who hated Him, to sell Him out to the Roman government to be crucified, which also fulfilled another prophecy in Genesis 49.10 about the lack of the ability of the Jews to... Um, or the, the culture of the Hebrews to you know, take out capital punishment. So that's another prophecy that I didn't even have in my notes that's being fulfilled here. The political situation and why they couldn't just crucify Jesus. Why they couldn't just stone Him to death. The ones that hated Him. So Jesus is... It's amazing. They think that they've got the upper hand on Him by the end of the week. But if He didn't get crucified, He wouldn't be able to die for our sins. So it's, it's pretty heavy stuff here. So continuing on, John 12. So let's go to John's Gospel. Very interesting. John, a nuance that John has is he mentions some groups that were actually in the crowd. Now we know some of the groups. John tells us some more. A, he tells us that there were witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection that they were in the crowd. Yeah, of course. <laughs> if you saw a man or a woman who was in a tomb rotting for four days and Jesus calls them forth and they're totally clean and their skin is beautiful and it's like nothing ever happened, you'd follow the person who did that everywhere too. So, you know, those who were in it, um, the word spread, they all were in the crowd. Right? That was part of the people in the crowd. Remember, no crowd is a monolith. Even at political rallies, that's not a monolith. You get like a few hundred, a thousand or more into a room and you interview them individually, they'll have different opinions because we all think differently, don't we? So you, you got that group that was in there. B was the religious, religious echelon 
who were pretty much apoplectic about the people following Jesus. They were there for the wrong reasons. Jesus wasn't trying to steal their thunder, but naturally, because they weren't genuine, He was. <laughs> he was the Son of God. Instead of going along with it and supporting Him, they did everything they could to stop His following. They were probably losing money. Right? And I don't know if that's... sort of see that today in some respects. You know, the power, the if you don't follow us, you're going to hell, and all this kind of stupid stuff. Do what the Bible says. Right? The organization should be following the precepts of what's laid out in Scripture, nothing outside of it. So that spirit of religion hasn't really changed. Um, you see some of these religious leaders who frown on a personal relationship with Christ, reading the Bible on your own. No, you've got to go through us. I don't say that. You see all these Bibles in here? You know how many times somebody comes here on a Sunday and says, well, I really like this Bible. I don't have a Bible. Can I take this home? Don't tell anybody. Just walk out the door. No. Yeah, take a Bible. You need a Bible? We'll give you one. Everyone should be free to read the, God's Word on their own and hide it in their heart. C. John 12 mentions that there were Grecians who came to see Jesus. There were Greco-Romans who were like, yeah, we're not too familiar with Judaism or the whole thing about the Messiah, but man, the stories about Jesus are everywhere. Let's, let's go check this out. Let's go look at him. The Grecians wanted to know. They wanted to see Jesus. Um, and that's, that's in, those are just in John's Gospel, right? And we have Luke's Gospel and um, Mark and, and Matthew. I want to turn to Psalm 118, verse 25. And this is still not the one, but I'm, I'm leading up to something. Psalm 118, 25. Okay, this was written prior to uh, Zechariah 9. So this goes back even further into the annals, the, the depths of, of history. It says this, Save now. Mm, that word save again. I'm going to get to that. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay, so it's another prophecy. Right? The crowd is saying a lot of different things. Hosanna. They're probably crying and you know, just wanting to just get as close to Jesus as possible. Some of them were probably healed by Jesus, fed by Jesus, ministered to emotionally by Jesus. And they were all following Him. So, Psalm 118, 25-26, now we couple this with Zechariah 9, and we're still not there for the, the really... The cherry on top, okay? I didn't get there yet. But the, both of these scriptures use the Hebrew word yashaw for salvation, to bring salvation, but also bring prosperity. This is the amazing thing that Jesus came, well, he came the first time, he's coming again in glory. But from a, a, to study the Bible prior to the Messiah coming the first time, you get these two different. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David, and even Jewish people today are, are in those camps. Well, we think the Messiah is going to come like a warrior. Well, we think the Messiah is going to come really gentle and loving and minister to us. Well, both of those things are happening. Right? The first time it was to bring literal salvation. Only God the Son could bring salvation of our souls. Again, most important. But there's also elements in here of a conquering king. And prior to Jesus coming the first time, it was, 
wow, we see this mixed in everywhere. And the rabbis, I read some rabbinical writings prior to the first century, and they were trying to discern the two different comings. And Jesus said, it's going to happen two different times. Everybody would like it to happen. I'm paraphrasing the first time. But it's the second time when he comes in glory and redeems that physical creation. Again, the first time he loves us so much, he came to save our souls. So only he could bring salvation. This is powerful stuff here. Okay, verse 37. So the multitude of disciples rejoiced and praised because of the mighty works that they had seen. Evidence was displayed throughout his ministry. He was able to read thoughts. He was able to raise the dead. He was able to open the eyes of the blind. He was able to cure people emotionally. He was able to, my goodness, multiply food, food from nothing. You know, so there was evidence there. Now, I've studied, because I like history, I've studied a lot of false or I would call wannabe messiahs, Bar Kokhba and uh, Judas and Thutis, not the, um, the, the, the one who followed Jesus. Um, so basically, none of them fulfilled Scripture. Now, if you ever, I think in my lifetime, somebody passed away and a lot of his followers said, oh, he was the Messiah. Man, you're about 2,000 years too late because God said it would come at a specific, literally, day in history. <laughs> so anyone today trying to claim to be the Messiah or hoping the Messiah would come, all of these scriptures pointed to a specific day of this triumphal entry. And I'm going to say it a few times, that's why most of the Lord's career they would say, oh, we want to make you the king. You know, they almost wanted to force him to become a king. And he said, it's not the time. It's not the time. I'll let you know when it's the time. And then when it was the time, he's like, now's the time. Yeah, but you tell them to be quiet. We could be in trouble with the Romans. And, you know, you're, you're, you're claiming to be God. Well, you know, if, if they're quiet, the stones will cry out. And we'll get to that as well. So, um, again, nobody fulfilled the scriptures that Christ did. Okay? And verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, we look at this world understandably and people who don't know the Lord and say, but Pastor Joe, and they make some good points. Where's the peace? Where's the peace? The peace is in heaven. Why? Because sin separated the human race from God. Period. For eternity. Every single person who's born and dies, born and dies, nobody's going to heaven. However, when the ball was in motion for Christ to come and then to be crucified, the ability was given for people to go to heaven. Billions, trillions. I don't know how big his halls are, but anybody, it's not like here. Everybody can fit in it, um, which is a wonderful thing. So there's peace in heaven. Let me tell you something else. In Romans 5, it tells us that when we turn to Christ, and we trust that He died for our sins, it says that we have peace with God. Peace with God. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. However, you have peace with God. Not with the world, maybe not with your circumstances, but rest assured that when God looks at you, he just it's His favor is upon you. Now, we don't always feel that way, do we? Sometimes our, our feelings can manipulate what we think. How many people have maybe gone through life as a Christian or gone through a dark period and thought, well, 
I'm sure God loves a whole lot of Christians in the world, but I feel like He's forsaken me. We let our feelings and circumstances pull us away from what we know, what we're taught. And that's why God's Word is eternal. They've tried to burn Bibles. They've tried to limit the reading of Bibles. Man, this has been going on for thousands of years. It's still here. And the irony is, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, all these old writings are pretty much under lock and key, usually guarded by men and women with machine guns. Okay, so that I have to laugh because they're so priceless because anything in this world. So funny how God used the world system to preserve his word. Interesting, because when you only have one of something, especially in archaeology, man, that's it is priceless. Nobody could put millions, billions. They won't sell it and they guard it. (laughs) So God's little joke on the human race, you know, as much as people try to attack him and you know, attack his word, man, it's going to be there as long as we live until the Lord returns. And then it'll be the living word, right? So five out of five is which group represents us? Okay, I've divided the groups into four. And, um, you know, some people may have more or less, but there's a reason why I make this division. We look at A. This is the group you want to be in. The multitude of the disciples shouting the shouts of praise. We praise the Lord Jesus. Now, let's go back to the world. If there was a Roman um, triumphal entry, they would have, the kings would have their entourage do the same, right? You see this in, in some countries, even with these puppet leaders or dictators, that there are people that line the streets next to them and they. There's, it's just so artificial, right? Because it's just a person. But it's like, well, you, you need to make yourself really sound believable or off with your head. Um, so it happened in the Roman days. It happens today. But the folks that followed Jesus did it because they wanted to. Because they knew that he was better than the Herods, better than the emperors, better than the corrupt religious system. And you know what? When we look at this pale and paltry world, we know the same thing. We look at our elected leaders and on all levels, they're, they're not fixing anything, right? That's why when we get to know Jesus, we praise him because we know that he's got the answers. So this is, this is a good place to be. We're on good footing if we fall in category A. Now B, the Pharisees and the religious elites. This is the spirit of powerful religion, self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, and elitism, Right? You look at any of the people today in the United States or in the world, the powerful global elites, they're trying to have a substitute for God. They have AI religions where you get to talk to some weird animated computer with a robe and this person's not even a person. Right? And people are bowing down. It's the weirdest thing to watch. It is, it's a cult. It's cult-like. But you look at any of these powerful global elites, which is the spirit here, or powerful religious elites, and, you know, they, none of them worship Christ. None of them do. If you find one, please let me know. I'd be interested in reading that article. Uh, I can't tell you how many times a person maybe has come to this church and in their excitement, they receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they go back home, relatives, peer group, religious people, and they basically tell them, you, you better not do that born again thing or you're going to hell. Really? What did Jesus say? Did he say you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven? Maybe we should explore what Jesus was saying because it is Jesus. 
How could you have a Christian... I just, I'm sorry, I use too much logic. How do you have a Christian religious system today that doesn't follow the words of Jesus or does the opposite? It makes no sense at all. So you don't want to be in category two or B. C, right? Another group, the stones. And I don't mean the rolling stones, okay? <laughs> so I mean the literal stones. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Oh, please. He's talking about the stones, the rock formations, that they will cry out. Can God make creation speak? Well, in Numbers 22, Balaam was riding a donkey and I've never said how, how animals can be more, more perceptive than people sometimes. And she, the donkey, sees danger ahead, an angelic being with, who's in judgment, and she keeps trying to get Balaam. I don't want to go that way, because if he strikes you down, he's going to get me too. And he, he smacks his donkey, and God allows the donkey to actually open its mouth and talk. Could you imagine talking to your donkey? <laughs> I, I talk to my dogs, and I sometimes think that they can talk back to me. Um, well, not literally in English, but all right, forget that. <laughs> the point, I just love animals, I'm sorry. The point is that, that the donkey was, was speaking in Numbers 22. Here's another one. How many of you have heard of the Musca interstellar cloud on the tip of the Crux constellation? Okay, cool. Well, now you're going to hear about it. So... Um, in every science, there are people that, whether it's archaeology or uh, astronomy or any of the biology, they see the power of God in creation. So this musca, this is the wildest thing. I don't even know how I came across this, but it's an interstellar cloud that produces magnetic vibrations. This is the coolest thing, okay? And what scientists have done, because they can't hear all the way from Earth, They've taken those mag magnetic vibrations and they put them into a computer program to get the wavelengths because it's actually making sounds. It's just too far away. You know, I listened to the, the computer-generated um, putting notes. It sounds like someone's playing a symphony. You've got this inanimate cloud, interstellar cloud, way out yonder. That's... I almost, I was in tears when I actually hit play. You, you've got to, if you ask me afterwards, I'll, I'll help you to spell it. This thing is playing music. <laughs> I mean, the Old Testament tells us about, about creation rejoicing. You ever just sit on the, the shore of a beach? How relaxing it is. Just go to the beach when there's not a million people there. Just sit there at night and listen to the waves. And there's a tempo to it. You know, they make white noise machines that sound like those. Isn't it amazing how we have to take things from nature that God has created and duplicate it to make ourselves feel better? You having a bad week? Go sit on the shore and listen to the waves crash against the shore. There's a tempo to it. It's beautiful. So, if God can make animals talk, if God can make a constellation sing, He could have made those rocks praise if all the people would keep silent. And I believe that that be literal. God could do anything He wants. It's just my personal opinion. Now there's an important, um, again, understanding throughout this is this is the time that Jesus not only was allowing the praise and worship because it is the day that it was to happen, um, but He said they should and if they don't, I'm going to make creation praise. 
Let, let's go to here it is, folks. Daniel 9.25. Daniel 9.25. This book was actually attacked by the, some in the atheist community because the prophecies were so uh, exact. But where they fail is that it in, it's in the ancient writings that are still protected, sub, such as the Septuagint. So it's in the ancient archaeological writings. It's very hard to attack this book because the scientific community has already affirmed it. So let me read this to you. It says, okay, so it's Gabriel uh, coming to Daniel. A lot of things are going on. A lot of sad things are going on. And he encourages him. And he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. At this time, Daniel... And a lot of the faithful Jews were forced into slavery. They were taken from uh, Israel and brought into the Babylonian Empire. And they didn't know if they'd ever see their homeland or if Jerusalem would ever stand again because it was in shambles. So the angel tells him that something is coming. That the Persians are going to find, the Jews are going to find favor with the Persians. Now you can look this up in history that there would be a command by a foreign empire to send the Jews back to help to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was unheard of. Even the wall was uh, created again. It was rebuilt, so to speak. Well, it was rebuilt. So the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks. So the weeks were the the Hebrew word Shavuah, which is a seven-year period, which is sort of like we get the ten-year period. We call them a decade. So it's, it would be the seven sevens and 62 sevens, which would be 483 total. He said, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, if you're Daniel the prophet, you're thinking, well, I'm really after going to trust God on this one because if I was to go there now, it's a wasteland that animals are scavenging and, you know, it's after the Babylonians destroyed it, it wasn't rebuilt. But it gets rebuilt. On March 14, 445 B.C., you can look this up, the Persian king in the history books, Artaxerxes Longimanus, commanded to send the Jews back, let them go, safe passage, give them letters if some of the soldiers you know, run into them. This is from the king. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay. 69 sevens. Uh, is it 183,880 days? Something like that. A calculation was done with leap years and you know all these kind of things. And what happened was, if you fulfill those 483 years or 183,880 days, I'm going to double check that. I think I'm right on that. Um, it gets you to April 6, 32 A.D., the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. To the day, folks. To the day. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes I think we read the Bible too fast. And I'm guilty of it sometimes too. I was so excited to share this with you. And that's why Jesus said, now. And if the people don't do it, you're going to hear some weird noises from those rocks over there because they're going to be all around praising God. And He deserves praise because He wasn't a mere man. He was fully God and fully man. That's power. That's powerful. So D, before we close, the last group is the seekers. The seekers. 
And when Jesus had the crowds following Him, a lot of people, you don't want to be in this group, (laughs) a lot of people followed Christ, but that's it. They were entertained by His teachings. You know, their knee was hurting that day. I hear Jesus, He touches you. You feel better. It's better than physical therapy. Um, I'm having a rough morning. I'm hungry. Don't have any food. Jesus will multiply the loaves and the fish. But that's it. There's an entire culture today that does the same thing. They go to various churches. They listen. They want their ears tickled. Even if they're blown away by the Holy Spirit teaching, they don't really do anything. They just go to the next event. Christian event after Christian event. Crowds, big. There's some feeling about being a crowd. It's a big deal. But they don't do anything. And it was the same thing here. They were among the Son of God. They were here among Him. And a lot of them did nothing. Now, I would just say, don't be part of the fickle and feckless crowd. Don't be part of the group of shallow seekers or critical consumerism. Because we see a lot of that in American culture today. I'm going to make an application. I'm going to make an application. Why not? Last week, Bridgefest, right? Bridgefest, great event. Uh, my home church put that on. My pastor, who I spent many a, a day, discipling days in his living room, and um, big thing, right? The bridge, Christian radio, took off several, uh, quite a few years ago. And the idea for Bridgefest was to get people to come and to actually meet their radio Bible teacher, that they couldn't see the person, they couldn't dialogue with them, but the, the goal or the idea was to get them to meet their Bible teachers. They, I've been there. They've had baptisms. It's, it's a great thing. There's an excitement. There's prayer going on. Sometimes people take communion, concerts, really good stuff. But remember the original idea. Now, some go to that and they come back and then they look for the next big thing. They don't do anything with it. And... If you're going for that, it's the wrong reason. You're no different than the people in the crowd. If you go to a bridge fest or some type of, we're talking about doing another night of worship here, if you go with the idea of, you know, I want to I be blessed. I want to see worship, hear worship. I want to pray with others. I want to hear the teachings of all these Bible teachers and then go home and do personal ministry or support your local church, then you've gone for the right reasons. I'm just telling you because I know what the, what the idea was behind the whole thing. You know, we have to be careful not getting caught up in the crowds, right? Um, because, what, what, you know, isn't it great that God doesn't move by public opinion polls? Isn't it great that God doesn't move by the majority, right? What is the majority saying today on social media? What's the culture teaching? I'll tell you what offends me is nobody can answer the question. Supreme Court justice, senators, congresspeople, what is a woman? I knew that in... (laughs) I knew that as soon as I went to school. It was very simple biology, okay? I understand it's on the chromosomal level, it's on the cellular level. There's a, a professor who is teaching genetics, another one, biology, they got fired because the students were angry because he said literally what a woman was. We don't know what a woman is? Well, I know what a woman is, okay? And I'm not going to go with what the majority says because, this, listen, I have a, a textbook from Rutgers from 30 years ago, bio, 
I bet they'd like to find it and destroy it because I'm sure the bio books say something different today. But I know what a woman is. I know what Genesis says. So don't go with the majority. The Lord didn't. And let me tell you something what the majority did. At the end of the week, oh, Hosanna, yeah, yeah, how exciting. Isn't this great? Isn't this a great time? Oh, my goodness. A few days later, they were all gone. They nailed Jesus to a cross. He gave Himself willingly. They raised Him up on that old wooden tree. People were gone, except a handful of really, truly dedicated followers. Don't be like the crowds. You know, the crowds didn't move Jesus. It's, this is all about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So my question now remains, now that you know that you have the ability to be forgiven, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you just have to believe and trust in that sacrifice. So here's my question. By the end of today, which group will you be in? every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.